0: I earned my salvation and I don't need God. This is the refrain of your wicked heart and mine when we are blinded by the sinful pride within us and we lose sight of the fact that our salvation is completely undeserved. Today, we will look at Ephesians two. Uh, 8 through 10. And we're going to see the kindness of our God to save us and keep us despite our depravity and our rebellion against him. The title of my sermon is by grace through faith. Salvation leads to humility, thankfulness and good works. So let's stand together to honor the reading of the uh, word of God. Again, we'll be in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Our Father in God, receive us this evening as we turn and seek you to worship you now. We come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, your son and our master, your son and our God. Appoint your great spirit, equip and encourage us in our worship of you as we come and we sing praises and please receive back what we seek to return, what you have bestowed freely and graciously. You have given to us and now we return it asking that you would multiply all of it in order that we might return it all again. I pray that this evening we'd be cut to the heart and also encouraged as we hear your good word, how you, have, uh, how you would have us to believe and to live. I pray that we would all not be too difficult for others to deal with through sins of our own. I ask that our liturgy would shape our lives and that your good spirit would not permit us to drift into dualistic sins and rebellions where we keep all the forms but deny all the power. We pray now for the grace of contentment to shield us and protect us throughout our days. We ask that you deck us with this kind of armor so that we would not have any grumbling or murmuring. I pray that the message today would be a true proclamation declaring great faith, and I pray that your spirit would seal it as preached. We pray that the new human race in Christ Jesus would continue to grow and flourish and prosper until the whole earth is refreshed and made new. We pray that we would finally come to create and to be an environment of mercy and of kindness and blessing towards others. We pray that when others come into our midst, that they would experience here in our midst the sense of entering a well-tended garden. Father and God, we pray to you now and ask that your mercy triumph over judgment. And Father, we pray for true love for this garden. Let love make us eager to loyally guard it. In Christ's holy name we pray and amen. Amen. You may be seated. So jumping straight in uh, to verse eight, we see that Paul begins this section of Ephesians by saying, for by grace you have been saved. So this is our topic for tonight, salvation, Um, and how it comes to us, Um, we see that our salvation is coming by this thing called grace, which is undeserved favor. But how is this favor obtained? Well, Paul tells us in the rest of this phrase through faith. So it's not as if we're completely uninvolved with our salvation, right? We have, and we exercise faith and this is the means by which we receive the grace that God has given us in our salvation. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, love is the crowning grace in heaven, but faith is the conquering grace upon earth. Faith is the master wheel, it sets all the other graces running. He also wrote, other graces make us like Christ, but faith makes us members of Christ. Our faith is the means that God has ordained to bring us into Christ. So we've just celebrated Reformation Day together as a ministry, and we had some great costumes together, um, great time of fellowship. But what Reformation Day really is, is it's a commemoration of October 31st and 1517, where Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door um, of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. This action is seen as the spark that lit the Protestant Reformation. Sproul writes of this, The motto of the Reformation in the 16th century with respect to the doctrine of justification was sola fide, which simply means by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church, which Luther was a part of, was teaching and has continued to our day to teach that in addition to faith, one needs good works to justify them. Yet, what do we see here in the passage, plainly, by grace, through faith, and lest we fool ourselves, the apostle writes and hedges against our pride and says, and this is not your own doing. Scholars argue about what the word this, or in some translations, it's that, depending on which one you have, what it's referring to. Um, is it grace? Is it salvation? Or is it faith? Or is it a mix or all three? Um, For my study of this, it seems as if the main pushback against uh, this being in reference to faith is from Arminians who would try to hedge against this, referring to faith as that would basically dismantle their system. For the Arminian system of theology, uh, humans have to be able to reach out and obtain grace in and of themselves. And um, The the objection here is that the word for this, which is also rendered that is not written in the feminine form. So in Greek, there's different forms like masculine, feminine, uh, neuter. Um, So this is written in the neuter form, while faith is written in the feminine form. So they suggest that this could be in reference to salvation or grace. But as Gill points out in his commentary, he quotes a Greek professor on the issue that says, the problem is that there is no precise referent. Grace is feminine here, faith is feminine, and even salvation as a noun is feminine. Yet it must be one of these three at least, or maybe more than one, or maybe all three in conjunction. Since all three come from God and not from man, the latter may seem more likely. However, it's a tautology to say that salvation and grace are not of yourselves. And in that case, it certainly looks more like the passage is really pointing out that man cannot even take credit for his own act of faith, but that faith itself was created by God and implanted in us that we might believe. So I agree and I take this here to at least be in reference to faith. And here's the thing wherever you stand on the soteriology debate, you know, (laughs) at least theoretically, that you haven't saved yourself. So why do you constantly live as if you need to? You are anxious, worrisome, and you toil and you try to meet a standard in and of your own strength. You know that Christ saved you, but you live as if you had something to contribute. We often call out false teachers such as prosperity preachers or those in the word of faith movement, or as I just did, the Roman Catholic Church for teaching a false gospel that would add something to the requirement other than faith. And this is good, and we do need to continue to do this. But let us not do it from a place of hypocrisy. You need to drop your functional polytheism. Stop acting as if you are in need of adding anything to Christ's finished work. Stop believing that you are capable of providing such an aid. You need to look to Christ, the Lord of all who has humbled himself and paid your debts. This is not of your own doing. What does the apostle continue to say? It is the gift of God. So what's the appropriate response whenever somebody gives you a gift? It's thankfulness, right? Imagine how absurd it would be if your friend came up to you and gave you a gift. And you said, ah, thank you. I've been waiting on you to recognize all the hard work that I've been doing. When we lose sight of the fact that our salvation is a gift, we are trading thanksgiving for pride. Think about it. When we're receiving gifts, particularly ones that we need, like let's say you need gas money. It speaks to the fact that we are not self-sufficient, right? Somebody's giving you something that you couldn't provide for yourself. (laughs) This spits in the face of our pride. Uh, We need others to help us. In the case of salvation and faith, we needed and we continue to need God's gracious gifts poured out on us. And acknowledgement of this is humiliating. And that's a good thing. (laughs) We could afford to be humbled. Paul continues in verse nine. He says that this is not a result of works. And he just wrote, this is not your own doing. And now he's writing, not a result of your own works. So what is, what's up here? Why is he repeating it? Well, he's not merely trying to meet some divinely imposed word count or something. He's bringing our attention back to what we, in our flesh, so badly want to gloss over. And Romans 3.20 shows us this. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Often, pride creeps into our hearts. Um, and we begin to think to ourselves, self, you did pretty good this week. You may be even better than your friend over here. And it's at this moment that we need to kill our pridefulness and repent of it. And instead of being self-congratulatory, we ought to be thanking God for using us for good works. Our works are a result of our salvation by grace through faith and faith is the means by which we are justified, not works. Paul writes later in Romans three in verses 28 and 31, he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then in 31, he says, do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So just because our works are not the means by which we're saved does not mean that we get to thwart the law, throw the law off. When we walk in faith, we will have love. And what did Clint teach us from Romans 13? Love is fulfilling the law. Paul continues, so that no one may boast. He's just, he keeps hammering us with this. Like it's, it's not our own doing. Earlier in chapter two of Ephesians, Paul explains that all men by nature are children of wrath. They're dead in their trespasses. And the nature of his language here is absolute. There is no exception. All those who are in Adam are deserving of death and hell. And this is what we, you, me, in and of ourselves are capable of of earning but thankfully we see Paul continue in verse 4 of chapter 2 what does he say but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ it is by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is why we may not boast, because all that we have provided to the equation of our salvation is the sin that necessitated a savior. Paul says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The use of created here can kind of hearken us back to the creation uh, story in Genesis, right? Uh, Yet if we take a closer look here of what this creation is, it's pointing to something different. What is created here? We are. So is this speaking of our creation in our mother's womb? No, this is talking about our being made alive in Christ Jesus. Paul expounds on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, and he says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he c- continues in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This text clarifies what our creation is. In Christ Jesus is it's a new identity for those who once lived in the flesh and thus did not recognize Christ as Lord though we once walked in this way Christ has made us new and he's given us a new mission in our passage in Ephesians Paul identifies this mission as good works and in second Corinthians he defined it as what the ministry of reconciliation So this is cliche, but your identity informs your mission. Who you are is necessarily, (laughs) informs the path that you are on, right? And how are we qualified for this mission uh, to be ministers of reconciliation? God came down and he took on flesh, dying a death that he didn't deserve and taking on our sins so that we would become his righteousness. This is good news. We've been set free from the bondage that once defined us. Now, instead of being defined by our sin, we are defined by God and His merciful grace that has pronounced us clean. Earlier we covered that it is faith, not works, that will save us. Yet here Paul says that we are made for good works. This isn't contradic- contradictory. Faith and works are not opposed to one another, um, but it's only in Christ that we can actually work uh, good works. Hebrews 11:6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith, then, is the prerequisite to good works. We understand that Regeneration grants us freedom to, good, to do good, but it's not as if we are just wholly good the moment that we become a Christian, right? This is called sanctification. And one commentator says on this that the work of grace upon the soul seems chiefly designed, which like a poem, as the word may be rendered, is a very curious work. We are not indeed perfected at once, but... The work is gradually carried on till the finishing stroke is given by the hand which begun it. The author of it is God. It is not man's work, nor is it the work of ministers, no, nor of angels, but it is God's work. The Christian's works are either wrought for them or in them by God. Salvation is a work wrought for them without them. And sanctification is a work wrought in them by God of his good pleasure. And all their good works are fruit of his grace. Everything that we could do that is good comes straight from the hand of God. So God then is the author and the creator of our new life, and he gets to pin every detail. This includes the major detail that we are not instantly perfected. God is perfect and wise in using all things, even the ugly things in our life, to bring us closer to him and to strengthen our desire and dependence on him. How glorious is this, that God uses difficult, ugly circumstances for our good? When we believe this, we can rest in that reality, no matter how much life's storms rage around us. Like, do you guys get this? This is the best Guard against feeling swayed by the things that life can throw at you. Knowing that God is in control and He's using it for your good and for His glory. Um, I'd encourage you, if you have felt like you've just been tossed around, to really spend some time here and, and contemplate this truth. See if you believe it. Um, I have a joke with Stephanie <laughs> that she's a Calvinist until there's a tornado. <laughs> Um, and <laughs> it's kind of true. Like, she, she believes that God's sovereign. Right. But then, like, whenever these tornadoes come, she's just like freaking out. But like, if she was contemplating on that truth in the moment, like it wouldn't really phase her. Like, yeah, death can come <laughs> to live is Christ, to die is gain. Right. Like we can trust that God has our legitimate good in mind, not a theoretical good, but a legitimate good in mind. So back to the passage, we see Paul continues, which God prepared beforehand. So once again, we're seeing God's sovereignty written all over this. God saved us when we didn't deserve it. And he made us new in Christ and did it so that we would walk in good works that he's prepared for us. Without God, no part of this would have or could have occurred. So the takeaway is that God has predestined these things to take place in your life. This brings us back to our theme of being humbled by God's grace. It is all grace through and through. Paul says that we should walk in them. When we walk in these good works, it's not as if we're uninvolved. It's not like we're robots just doing a pre-programmed thing. It's actually you seeing the path desiring it and taking the steps. But God's placed it there, the path, the desires, the legs to walk on, the strength to walk. When we walk in these good works, we're worshiping God and offering our lives up to him as a sacrifice. So through this passage, we see that God is gracious and we are undeserving, yet he chose us anyway and saw and is seeing the whole thing through. And this should motivate us to do the things that he's made us for um, and provided for us to walk in, right? The truths in this passage are basic. They're not necessarily simple to understand. They're, They're deep, right? But they're basic. We have salvation. It comes by grace, through faith, even though we didn't deserve it. And God orchestrated the whole deal, start to finish, top to bottom. Unless God convicts us and grants us repentance, and a new heart, there is nothing anyone can do that is capable of changing us. Without divine intervention, not even the scriptures can change us. Joel Beakey echoes John Flavel saying, God's law makes no more impression on the hearts of fallen men than a tennis ball thrown up against a stone wall. And our flesh, our hearts are stony. We need a physician to give us a new heart. This new heart is free from the tyranny and the slavery of sin. It's free to walk in good works. And this all necessitates humility and thankfulness, which Paul reminds us. But how often do you actually start to walk in these good works and you just want to look down on others out of some self inflated sense of righteousness? Like I got it together. I'm better than than David. No, I'm not. If I've done anything good, it is by Christ, not by me. In these moments, you are not only ignorant to the truth, but you are believing and propagating lies, at least to yourself and maybe to others. The lie that you in and of yourself are good. The lie that you are better than others by some virtue of being self-made. The lie that you achieved any of this. For yourself, the lie that you don't need God. At its core, this pride is the killer of thankfulness, which is the appropriate response to grace. This is what we saw in Romans 1 whenever we began the book, in verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Instead of giving thanks, fallen man revels in his folly. John Piper puts it this way. Proud people don't say thanks. Gratitude is the echo reverberating through the hollows of the human heart but proud people don't need grace they don't think that their hearts are hollow without God they are filled with wisdom tight-lipped they take the diamond of God's glory they enter the pawn shop of pride and they hawk it for some broken marble of self-reliance then they take this little idol home and they set it on the mantle of their mind and they bow down to it in a hundred different ways every day we are in desperate need of shouting to God Lord Rid me of the pride that opposes you. Help me to be acquainted with my lowly state. Remind me of your grace. But there's also another type of pride. It's silent, yet arguably a more sinister version of it that we should consider in relation to faith. This marks the person who... (laughs) at least has fooled themselves into thinking that they're not trying to save themselves by their own works see this person um, is draping themselves in a fake humility they are marked with morbid introspection they're just looking straight into themselves and they're a selfish individual who masquerades as selfless this person is concerned with faith but to them the act of having faith is a work that they can achieve. They look to their faith instead of the object of it. They say, my faith is too weak. Why can't I have faith like so-and-so? Why am I still struggling with this sin if I have faith? These are the thoughts and the words of one who needs to fix their eyes on Christ, not on themselves. If this is you, brother or sister, Listen to me. If you look within and all you see is ugliness, you ought to look outward to your Savior who is able to cleanse you and strengthen your faith. Looking within will not yield the results that you desire, but it's going to send you spiraling down into depression. Repent of your pride that has not beheld your Savior but has made you self-centered. Look to Christ. So, Lastly, how should we consider um, pursuing walking in good works? Realize that you do have a role to play. Just because God's prepared them beforehand doesn't mean that you're exempt from exerting any kind of effort. In fact, your effort informed by and upheld by the Lord is the means by which God has ordained the works to come about. This isn't a passive experience. Um, What are these good works though? Must you become a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary to accomplish these good works? Well, no, by no means. You will walk in these good works when you're familiar with the God who has planned them. Go hear the word preached, read the word, sing the word, pray the word, see and taste the word through the sacraments and then put your hand to the plow of the work in front of you. Finish that paper sell those policies, (laughs) teach those kids, swing the hammer, bake the bread, marry the girl, and do it all for God's glory, knowing that your God has saved you so that you could walk this way by grace, through faith, and not of your own doing. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our faith is weak, yet we praise you for giving us such grace. We confess that we often set ourselves in the place only you belong, imagining that we could produce righteousness by ourselves. Yet we praise you that you sent your son and made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We confess that we have forsaken the gift of being made new in Christ and have crawled back to the passions of our flesh. Yet we praise you that you are faithful to restore us to fellowship and still use us to accomplish your will through good works. Our prayer echoes the Puritan who prayed, Lord, awake faith to put forth its strength until all heaven fills my soul and all impurity is cast out. Lord, continue to mold us and shape us to look more and more like our Savior. Give us strength to live in light of the gifts that we've received of salvation by grace through faith. We love you and we praise you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.